Welcome to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. This is your host, Ethan Gavon, coming to you from Sacramento, California. Keep Playing Baseball is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping every high school baseball player navigate the recruiting process and play college baseball. At Keep Playing Baseball, we don't think money should dictate college baseball opportunity, and all our resources, including this podcast, are 100% free. No signups, no fees, no strings attached. We use the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast in many different ways, but the main point is to get you the information you need to keep playing baseball. We appreciate you tuning in to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast, the best source of recruiting information on the go. What's up, guys, and welcome to the latest episode of the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. With a catcher taken number one overall in the MLB amateur draft, we thought it'd be a great idea to bring on a catching guy and talk about the backstop position. On today's episode, we talk with Brett Thomas of the Catching Academy. Thomas played collegiately at UC Berkeley and immediately jumped into the coaching ranks following his playing days. He's coached at the Division I junior college and high school levels, including time at UC Berkeley and College of San Mateo. Thomas has always had a passion of working with catchers and felt the need to develop catchers at a lower level to prepare them for the next step in their baseball playing careers. So in 2014, he started the Catching Academy. Going on nearly five years now, the Catching Academy works with over 100 catchers a year, helping to develop physical skills, but more importantly, people and leadership skills. Thomas is the perfect guy to bring on the the podcast here and talk about the catching position. He knows it inside and out. He's helped players move to the college level. He's coached players at the college level. And we're excited to talk about being a backstop, playing college baseball, and getting recruited. Our conversation about these topics starts right now with Brett Thomas of the Catching Academy. Brett, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be fun talking uh, talking some catching, talking some recruiting, some college baseball stuff. Um, why don't you start off, just give us a background, your background in baseball, uh, what got you up to this point in your career as the founder of the Catching Academy? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, grew up a catcher, um, you know, was, was, uh, Definitely very passionate about uh, baseball and, and the catching position. And, um, you know, I was fortunate uh, in my, you know, really my entire life to have great catching instructors. Um, I was fortunate even in my high school days, I had a great catching coach, John Perchio, um, and then went on to uh, play at junior college. I played for a great catching coach, Tom Nillis, who's now actually the head coach at Santa Ana College um, down in Santa California. And then I got to Cal and I was fortunate to work with, uh, you know, Tony Arnrich, who's the catcher coordinator for the Mariners, who you've had on this uh, podcast, of course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, been very intrigued by, you know, the development of the position over that time and, and everything. So, you know, my playing days, I really spent a lot of time, um, you know, thinking, working, studying, you know, the position from the defensive end and, 
Um, so it's just been, you know, again, I've been fortunate and now I just kind of continue to with social media and everything get to continue to learn and learn on, on catching and all the new developments that come of it. Yeah. Exciting time really, um, for all positions, but it seems like catching in particular historically has been kind of a, I hate to say a forgotten position, but you know, there, there wasn't typically a catching coach on a lot of teams. So it seems like things are, are changing. Talk a little bit about what you feel about the state of catching. Obviously, there were three first-rounders that were catchers, four including the, the supplemental rounds. But in your eyes, what's the state of catching and, and have things uh, gotten better for, for catchers and, and the instruction out there? I mean, definitely there's a lot of resources out there. And I think that's more a, a nod to, you know, the availability of it now with social media and things like that. But I think what really changed the catching position uh, was the, the invention of the, the pitch framing stat. You know, we, you know, we always thought of catchers as, you know, the only real defensive stat we ever kept track of was basically their fielding percentage and how many runners they throw out was kind of the only thing that you could ever really track. Um, Now, when you look at the pitch framing stat, you know, which receiving is, is by far the most important thing that catchers do. And we're actually able to now, you know, in some way, you know, I don't know exactly what the right way is or not. I think they do a good job with it, but it's just a reality of, it's something that, that we can look at numbers. Baseball is such a factual game. Um, We really determine what's good and what's bad based on numbers and for decades catching was the pitch position where it was like hey the the catcher they do so much that you really there's no stat for um which as a you know kind of an old school traditionalist baseball person I always kind of loved that I always kind of thrived off of that idea that like we really only cared about wins and losses we didn't have this myriad of stats Mm -hmm. Um, but the pitch framing stat has really made it so that people kind of pay attention to what catchers are doing besides throwing, um, which I think has been, you know, so, so huge for a, you know, the development of catchers alone starting to focus on it. Now that they watch guys on TV and they say, Oh, this guy's fourth in the league and is receiving and pitch framing, you know, that gives them something to go, Oh, I need to do that. I want to do that. Whereas we always just knew I was growing up. I was like, I wanted to be like Pudge because right. he, he just threw the crap out of it and threw everybody out. I couldn't even tell you back then how good a receiver he was because, you know, as a kid, we didn't pay that much attention to that stuff. Yeah. So when it comes to you working with catchers in the catching Academy or elsewhere, what, what's your developmental philosophy? Where do you start if you're trying to build a catcher from scratch? What's the, what's the best, most important place that, that you can start? I mean, number one, we've got to start with with their stance and their positioning. So, you know, we've got to be able to get them in positions that allow them to feel comfortable. Um, so, you know, it obviously sounds stupid. It's like, okay, square one, this is our stance. But the reality is, is there's in catching, there's so much more to that because we're in a squat. Um, so what comes with that is the flexibility training, the mobility training, um, be able to attack, you know, certain things in our body that help us sit in a crouch and feel comfortable. Um, you know, when I first get a, a student, I'm always like, name another position in sports where you, there's such a physical disadvantage. 
And they kind of really think about it and they're like, there really isn't one. And I'm, you know, I kind of, I could kind of get an argument for like maybe the hockey goalie, right. uh, you know, who's really down low a lot, but like, you know, even like offensive linemen, you know, they're either sitting up higher or they got a hand on the ground or, I mean, there's really not a position in sports where somebody's literally in a squat. So it takes some, some physical development to feel comfortable there. And, you know, we can spend hours and hours, you know, on the certain skills that we want to develop and things like that. But the reality is, is being comfortable is what makes people successful. You hear it all the time in terms of hitting, you know, like, Hey, I just, you know, what did you do out there today? Well, I, you know, I just felt really comfortable in the box. Well, if I'm not comfortable in my stance and I feel some pain and it's forcing my stance to be wider than I want it to be, my feet being more open than I want it to be. One of the biggest things we see with the struggle of a stance is being able to keep your target down. Um, when you're in a stance and you don't have a, an extreme amount of balance, um, we always gravitate to the center of our body to create balance. So our target is the first thing that comes up to the center of our body to create balance. Um, and when we're really focusing on trying to work underneath pitches to receive and working to get low strikes um, called, we're really having to work back down from a position that we're not balanced. So, um, you know, nowadays, again, just like everything else we're talking about, the availability of, you know, workout stuff, flexibility, mobility, everything that's out there now. Um, you know, we started the Catching Academy and everything we started was in classes. And the whole point was, A, I wanted to know they were coming every week. We wanted to know that they were going to be, you know, signing up for eight weeks of class, that it's a classroom. We're learning. This is a place that we learn. And every class being 90 minutes, the first 30 minutes was going to have a flexibility, mobility, and agility routine, focusing all of that stuff. And then we obviously get into an hour of, of catching work, which, you know, varies as we move through the progression of it. But the reality is, is, you know, we have all this information as to how to gain the flexibility and the mobility. So guys really need to understand their own uh, mobility, their own patterns, everything that they need to work on so that all this stuff that we do and drills and everything like that can actually be put to use. Cause again, the minute you get out there, you lose some balance and you're uncomfortable. Everything you did is out the window. Just like, again, like hitting, we get out there and something makes me feel uncomfortable in the box, you know, the prettiest swing in the world, but if I'm not comfortable, I'm not getting a hit. Right. So let me ask you this then piggybacking off what you just said, if there's a high school player listening out there, what are, you know, some two or three things that they need to know a about their mobility and what are some things that they can incorporate into a daily routine that are going to help them become more, more comfortable being in, you know, as you say, what can be sometimes an uncomfortable position. I mean, I think the biggest way to think about our stance is that we have to be athletic and, uh, it's kind of that idea that when you go, you know, you kind of, you grow up and like you're playing little league and like the coach always just throws like the biggest guy back there to catch. Cause they're like, Oh, he's big. And you know, all he's got to do is like sit back there. Like it's like an easy job. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I crack up thinking about like little league where like, you know, my buddies that were, you know, like overweight almost. And like, you know, and they're like, Oh yeah, no, he's going to be the catcher. He's the big guy. Big guy always goes back there and catches. Yeah. Um, but every time I get a kid, I'm like, Hey, just, if you and I were going to play basketball right now, what would it look like when you guard me? And every single time they immediately get to the balls of their feet. They immediately have a little bit of movement in their body. Cause they have this like feeling they have to anticipate. Is he going to, you know, is he going to dribble? Is he going to shoot? Is he going to pass? And I say, that's the same feeling we have to have in our stance. 
So I've got to be able to think whatever I'm doing in terms of I'm playing defense in basketball, whatever I feel my body doing like that, I have to achieve that same thing in a squat. So essentially that means, you know, my feet are just a little bit open and obviously I'm, I'm able to sit comfortably and I'm able to have a little bit of movement. And I think in terms of guys testing their own flexibility and mobility, you know, number one is, you know, how close can you get your feet to forward? A lot of times if our feet are super out, our toes are basically, you know, almost at like three and nine on the clock, you know, that means my hips are not allowing me to get my knees inside my feet and move my feet a little bit more forward. So just like we said, if I'm going to be an athlete, there's no athlete in the world that would go out and try to defend Steph Curry with their feet at three and nine. So that's kind of a, a solid test of our hips and, and everything in terms of our mobility and, and feeling of sitting in that stance. But one thing that's, and, and we hear more of it now, but that a lot of guys don't understand too is, is just ankle mobility. So the flexibility of our ankles to allow us to be able to sit and have that bend where we can feel like our shin guards get a little bit closer to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anybody who can kind of, you know, when those shin guards are like, straight up and down, that's basically your ankles not allowing your knees to move any forward to get yourself any lower. And now we're kind of battling our shin guards as we try to work to get again back to those low pitches in receiving. So in terms of like tests, those are good tests uh, just to kind of figure out what you're doing. And then, you know, in terms of what you can do, obviously there's a ton of resources in terms of, you know, you could go to, um, Instagram, Twitter, and whatever these days and type in ankle mobility, uh, hip flexibility, you know, and type in all these things and you can find a ton of stuff. But for me, when I get students and I know that they need work on it, the reality is I just need them to sit in that position. So I want them to do flexibility drills. I want them to do mobility drills, but I also want them to just sit in that position. And I was, I was working in a facility one day and one of the pitching coaches next to me, who's incredible, Bobby Vistrowski, He's talking about the flexibility that his pitcher needed. And he said, hey, here's the deal, dude. For the next month, you don't own a couch. You're literally, anytime you decide you want to watch TV, you want to play video games, you want to jump on your iPad, you stretch. And I saw, I heard that and I'm like, dude, that's it. I mean, I get kids now and I go, here's the deal. Here's the test. You know, you want to watch TV? Sit in your squat. You know, you want to play video games? Sit in your squat. You know, you want to sit on the iPad, do whatever, sit in your squat and take that time to just open up, especially at the younger ages. Um, You know, when you get the kids are like 12 to 15 is really where their bodies haven't really developed at all. So there's, there's just a lot of, you know, opening up basically, like you're basically just doing something that your body's like, what the heck's going on here? It's new. Um, So just doing it a bunch is huge. So I tell my catchers that now too. I'm like, Hey, you know, you're going to play an hour of Fortnite a day. Fine make it productive, sit in your squat and play an hour of Fortnite, And we can utilize that to, to help ourselves get better and more comfortable. Yeah. Love it. Hey, you're, you're eating dinner. Forget the dinner table. You're eating, <laughs> you're eating your dinner plate <laughs> in the catcher squat. Love yeah. it. Yeah. That would fire me up if somebody sent me a picture of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So we're talking about stances, right? You see a ton of different stances. So primary stances, um, secondary stances, you see guys with uh, knees on the ground, one knee, two knees, you see leg out. You see just a ton of different things. 
So when it comes to setting up to catch the ball, are you teaching a little bit of everything? Do you want guys to be able to put themselves in all these positions? What, what type, what type of positions are you, are you having these guys work on on a regular basis? Um, I mean, for the most part, we're going to cater it to the athlete. So a lot of that stuff that, you know, we talked about in terms of flexibility and things like that um, will make us change some things up. So we might move a guy's side saddle, which just opens him up just a little bit in his lower half. Uh, we may go one knee down, uh, things like that. But, you know, we also, because we believe in repetition so much that it's like, if I've got a guy um, and we're working a one hour lesson, that's a lot of time. Um, that you're working on stuff. And and I don't want to ever stop. You know, we can't just say, hey, we'll work for 10 minutes, take a little breather for five or 10. And then, you know, we're going to keep going. So the reality is, if I need a guy to work on receiving for 20, 30 minutes within that, you know, he's going to, he's going to need to move his body to kind of get into some different spots to continue to go through it. So we work a lot with the knee down, you know, a, they get used to it, they get they can feel a little comfortable with it, it helps them kind of open up their hips a little bit more but also just in terms of getting repetitions where they might not be able to sit in that spot for an hour. Uh, we now switch some things, but um, you know, I am, I'm very much a case by case coach. So, I mean, I have, you know, certain philosophies I feel uh, I have certain ideals of what I think are important, um, but every single guy is going to be different. If you look at all the catchers we work with in the catching Academy, you know, you don't just like look at him and go, Oh, that's a catching Academy guy. Because mm-hmm. the reality is, is we want them all, to be successful, however they are. And, and everybody's so different. So um, I'm open to every single thing. Um, you know, the, when I first started coaching, I was very much like, Oh, this is, you know, this is how we do things. This is what we do. And then, you know, I started getting more into I'm like, well, he can't do that. And, you know, he can't do that. And, you know, it's, you just really have to kind of evolve um, in terms of what works for that individual. So, you know, we, when we talk about receiving, basically most catchers um, have a really good feel of retracting their, their elbow on a pitch that's to their glove side. Um, and most have, or, or one will have a feel for how to beat the ball working below it on the outside pitch. And there's kind of a natural ability to it. It's really the same sort of a deal we see with blocking where like somebody's always better blocking from one side or the other when they start and we have to work them both. But in terms of if if somebody's really good uh, at working, you know, inside and, and to the glove side and retracting that elbow, having a feel for that, I'm going to want them squared up because I need them to then be really good at beating that ball outside. So by mm-hmm. closing them off, that helps them beat that a little bit. The other guy who's okay at beating that ball to the outside, but kind of has a doesn't have a feel for letting that ball get in and retract that that arm inside, I'll open them up a little side saddle. So now they don't feel like they're, they're working with that knee in the way. Okay. So So that's kind of an idea of, of just kind of catering it per, you know, per catcher. So in case there's catchers out there who are used to different terminology, talk a little bit about what you mean by side saddle and and exactly what a player is doing when they're in that position. I mean, really, it's just essentially like taking your right foot back um, just to kind of like the instep of your left foot and uh, just, you know, trying to keep your knee inside your left foot so that essentially that, that glove arm is clear to kind of move in any direction and inside pitches. Uh, and I always say inside glove side um, pitches is really, I need to be able to have movement front to back. 
So that's mm. really how I create. I'm able to create more distance left to right by moving front to back. So by retracting my glove arm, I'm able to stay in a strong position with that relationship between my wrist and my elbow. So by moving, I'm moving off the plate, like closer to the right-handed hitter. By doing that, I'm actually going to move back is going to create that distance. So a lot of guys struggle with that. And there's some wrist flexibility issues and things like that, that if they're squared up, they tend to want to have the pocket face kind of towards the shortstop because they, as they move back, which is a little difficult for them. So if I move them side saddle and just get, basically turn their hips a little bit, their right foot's maybe three inches back. Now they feel a little bit more comfortable moving front to back to be able to get that movement and keep the pockets square on the baseball. Sure. Okay. Now, when it comes to receiving, what are you teaching in terms of glove presentation? Are you having guys relax the glove while the, while the ball's on the way? Where do you stand with that? Uh, you know, once they're in that comfortable receiving position, um, what do you want the glove action to look like? Um, again, you know, it's going to go case by case, but the, the basic like points that we have to hit are, you know, A, we've got to have our pocket open for our target. Um, so it's, it's like that for me is essentially kind of when like a golfer like lines up to a golf ball, you see like the guys, they'll kind of have that little bit of like forward shaft lean in their setup because they're going to try to repeat and get back down to that motion on contact. So, you know, it's obviously important for the pitcher too. I mean, I think, you know, I think kind of the target for pitchers is one of those things where they, you know, it's more of a mental issue than anything else, but we definitely want to give them a good target, but I definitely want to start there. And then I definitely need to have the pocket open to the baseball as early as I can when I'm receiving it. So there are guys who have too much movement, they're rolling their glove and things like that. And, you know, they're basically like flipping the glove open right as the ball is about to hit their glove. So they're really just trying to get the pocket open right at contact. And it was something I did. I remember I was at Cal, I was working with Tony and he got the machine on me and we're doing, you know, we got the machine going pretty good. He's got the camera on me and, you know, he's slow mowing it. And like, I've got the back of my glove facing the baseball and I can see the balls, you know, four or five feet away from me. Right. So I'm having to do this like quick action with my glove to get it back open. And there's nothing, there's nothing relaxed or smooth about the idea of, you know, receiving that baseball because it's a aggressive action. I think it's, you know, we call that, we call it our preliminary movement with our glove. And that to me is our load to receiving. So when we're hitting and we have a, a load to hit, well, we want it to have some rhythm. You know, we want to have some timing with it. We want to do it earlier. So I know that I'm in a position to speed up if I need to, or wait if I don't. And for me, it's the same thing. A guy who kind of closes his glove all the way kind of equates to the guy who's like wrapping his bat around his head. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, athleticism, we go, we're going to square baseballs up, even if we wrap. And it's the same deal. We're going to, you know, get that pocket open in time and get some good pitches and receive. But from a consistent standpoint, the guy who's got that barrel under control in the load, he's going to have a much easier path to a bunch of different baseballs. And the same thing goes for our receiving. So, you know, again, 
I think catching's always kind of everybody's kind of been like, oh, it's totally different. It's like its own thing, but it's not. It's it's the same stuff. What we're teaching from receiving standpoint is the same stuff an infield coach is teaching a shortstop. Right. You know, they're saying, hey, present the pocket to the ball as early as you can. We're going to work in to out. We're going to work down to up. We're going to you know use the pocket to create action to get the ball to stick. All that same stuff we're talking about. And we do a ton of pick drills. I mean, um, honestly, all the time. I mean, I think it's one of the most important drills because you can't be late with your preliminary and then get down there and pick a baseball. It's almost impossible. So it forces them to understand, okay, the pocket's got to be open early. And I know my action has to be in to out, down to up to make sure that that ball stays in my glove. And then from there, we literally just have to continue through to present the baseball to the umpire after they pick it. And I think it's one of those drills where they really start to feel it and understand it. Like, okay. And again, some guys are going to close their glove a little bit. Some guys are going to try to keep their glove open a little bit more uh, through their preliminary. It doesn't really matter as long as, again, they get to the position they need to get to receive. So if they roll their glove a little bit, well, they just need to make sure that they're open early, um, you know, before the ball's, you know, halfway there or so that their pocket's open and presented to, to where it's going to be. Yeah. So I guess what I, what I think of when I hear you talk about this stuff, I think about creating margin for error, right? So when you talk about the hitter who wraps, um, you know, they're, they're decreasing their margin for error. Like you said, they're not allowing themselves to hit a variety of pitches and especially as a catcher same thing as an infielder, you know, glove presentation, you want to give yourself margin for error. If the ball takes a funky hop, you know, catchers are dealing with balls that are moving all over the place, cut, um, tail, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. So putting that, um, giving a presenting to the ball earlier is going to give you more margin for error when things don't go exactly as you'd expect. hundred percent. I mean, that's, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, that ball has late action on it and you're able to just make a slight little movement. And if I'm trying to like whip that thing open and then it has some late action on it, I really don't have a chance of, you know, I might not even catch the ball, let alone present it well enough to be able to get the pitch. Yeah. And, you know, you hear a lot about framing or presenting the ball to the umpire. What are your thoughts on, you know, post-catch movement? How do you want your catchers to try and work with the umpire to, to steal a stry ball or, you know, a, a pitch that could be a strike or a ball, a pitch on the edge? Um, you want them working that back to center? Do you want them, you know, what are you talking to your guys about in terms of, you know, maybe presenting or manipulating the ball a little bit to try and get a strike? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's a tough one, only in the sense of like, you know, it's kind of like receiving's, like receiving is like my my favorite thing in the world. It's mm-hmm. like such like a, that's kind of like, you know, chapter eight in the receiving, uh, book. Right. but to kind of give the brief like rundown of it to get to that point would be number one. Um, I don't really have any sort of specific philosophies on, you know, this is the way to, to bring a ball back into the zone. This is the way, you know, some guys say, just catch it right where it is still. Some guys say, you know, we can work it and move it. We can work through it. Some guys turn, some guys work through. There's a bunch of different things. In order to do any of those things, we have to establish positions of strength in terms of receiving the baseball. So we say, hey, are basically, are you manipulating the ball 
however you want to, or is the ball manipulating you? And that's where it comes into the point of our teachings of receiving early are we've got to be strong as the ball hits our gloves. So, you know, three main keys we talk about are working underneath the ball. Ball's moving down. Gravity is pushing the ball down. So if we at all get the pocket facing down and we're catching the top of that ball, the, the weight of the ball and that gravity are pulling our glove down. So we are not in control. So whatever our philosophy is, we're not in control. Um, we talk about a two o'clock glove position with our thumb. And really what we're trying to, to do when we say that is that our elbow is below our wrist, which gives us a really strong position. Basically, if you were to hold your hand up and you have your thumb at two o'clock on a clock, it's like almost like the position you would be in to do a push-up, where it's my wrist is behind my hand, my forearm's behind my wrist, my biceps behind my forearm, shoulders supporting my bicep, and I'm creating all of this strength um, that allow me to again be in control of the baseball. And that one, you know, as the ball moves through the zone, there's some different things we have to do. We can't always catch the ball right at two o'clock. And then the third one is just getting the ball close to us. I'm stronger, closer to my body. You know, the closer my my glove is to my body, I'm in control, I'm strong. But more importantly, you know, if you were to have a glove on, you pull your, your hand as close to your body as you can, the pocket is able to actually open upward. So now the pocket can be squared up to obviously the fastball moving down, but then breaking ball, change up, things that are going to have more action down. We're opening the ball of the pocket up to those balls. So I know I'm working underneath and in a strong position. The farther I get away from my body, it's literally impossible for the pocket to be facing straight or upward a little bit if my arm is fully extended. So again, my pocket's going to be catching the top of the ball and pulling me in terms of that. So that's kind of the first thing where we say, hey, here's the idea. These are the positions of strength that we have to get into. And then we talk a lot about, you know, different ways of, of how we get strikes. Um, first and foremost is keeping strikes strikes. So, you know, we, we don't spend a lot of time on stealing strikes early in the development of catchers. Mm -hmm. The importance, the importance of catchers early is, you know, is your guy just hammering the zone down? Like that guy needs to get all of those pitches. I mean, I'm talking about pitches that are just at the knees that are normal strikes are big strikes because that's the, that's the game changer. We tell pitchers, we got to throw the ball down. We got to get ground balls. We got to keep it away from their barrel. And, you know, we talk so much about blocking and throwing and I go see these college showcases and everybody's judged on their pop time. They throw four balls in the dirt and call it a day. And it's like, the reality is, is the receiving can change a game to where it can take an outing from a pitcher. And, you know, obviously if they're getting more strikes, they're throwing less pitches, but even, even more so they're more confident. They're more in control. And they're able to, to work through games longer. They're able to, you know, make sure that you save your bullpen in some situations. And, you know, I've got obviously kids at the highest levels of professional baseball, you know, where they're, hey, they got to make sure they're managing arms for X amount of arms for however many 140 games a year. You get to college and they're playing three games a weekend. And you think, man, if I'm able to get, because I received, well, I got one more inning out of my Friday guy. That's huge for a weekend series. High school is a little different. It depends on the area you're in. They don't play quite as many games. But you get into that tournament setting, and then you get down into the younger ages of the travel ball, things like that. It's like 
you know, we're, we're, Hey, if we want to win this tournament, we got to roll out, win four or five games. Well, again, every little bit of pitching that you can save is massive. And that comes with the receiving. So in terms of the stealing of strikes and things like that, we do have some techniques that we talk about. Reality is first and foremost, we need to make sure strikes are strikes and that's being in a strong position. I do think when the ball's in the zone, there should be very little movement. We should just focus on, you know, catch it, show it right where it's at. I think especially if we start with that approach, uh, we kind of go into a game saying, Hey, I'm just going to stick it right where it's at and let the umpire decide if it's a ball or a strike. And if I do a really good job of that, my pitcher's doing well. Now I've set up outside and I've had my, my the logo on my chest protector on the black and he's doing a good job of hitting that spot. And I'm literally showing no movement with my glove. Well, I'm kind of earning the ability in the third and fourth innings to now I set up where I'm a little bit further out and I still just catch right where it's at. Even though that pitch might now be two inches, three inches off the plate, I'm still just catching it right where it's at. Everything looks the same. We may be later in the game, continue to move, out and out. And I think the pitchers, best pitchers I ever saw were those types of guys that could extend the plate, you know, by the, they're spotting up in the first inning. And then by the seventh inning, you feel like the plate's 24 inches wide. Um, and it makes it extremely difficult. Now, some umpires aren't going to buy into that. So you are going to have to move the glove and we work on techniques to turn low pitches, working through pitches. But again, all of that comes from the first thing, the position of strength to be able to do it all. So I can go in and say, hey, you know what? Umpire's not giving me anything off the plate as I sit here and stick it, not moving it. So I'm going to move it a little bit. You move it a little bit, he gives you the strike call. And you just kind of have to have all these, you know, arrows in your quiver to, to be able to say, hey, that day, it's going to be different. And <clears throat> we kind of, there's not really like an excuse for like, oh, I received really well, you know, this way, but you know, we didn't get a lot of strikes today. Oh, well, we lost the game. Well, like that's not, that's not good enough. Uh, we need to have something else to go to, uh, to make sure that we're getting the pitches that we need to get to help our team succeed. Yeah. Putting yourself in a, a strong position so that you can make adjustments on the fly. Love it. Totally. Love it. And I think, I think there's, you know, the biggest thing is that I tell guys all the time, umpires come to the game to call strikes. There's never been an umpire at any level that's like throwing his gear on being like, man, I wonder how many guys I can walk today. Maybe I can set a record on walks, right? I mean, no umpire wants to be there. So the reality is, is put them in a position to feel comfortable. So if I'm receiving and I'm making it look easy, cause that's the bottom line. When we're like overselling and framing, I'm making it look like it's difficult for me to do that. So he's got to think in his head, like why did he feel the need to do that? And any little bit of hesitation, makes him pause to say, even if he immediately thought strike, he pauses just enough to say ball. So now we basically put ourselves in a position where, you know, he's got to start thinking, why is he doing that movement? Okay. When he doesn't do that movement, that seems like it's a strike. So we've got to find a way to make it look really easy. If I make it look easy, then it looks easy for him. He can get into a rhythm calling strikes. More importantly, if I make it look easy, the dugouts, are appearing like it looks easy. So now when you make a really good movement with your glove a little bit to get a pitch from, you know, two inches off the plate to the black to create a strike, well, I made it look so easy that no, no coaches from the dugouts, 
know anybody are, are arguing because the reality is, is that's what changes an umpire strike zone throughout a game. If I try to oversell a frame, you know, and it's called a strike, well, now the hitter's upset, the hitter's coach is upset. If I oversell a frame, I'm trying to really work for my pitcher, and then my pitcher's going, oh, he's upset because it's a ball. And then my coach goes, he did a great job framing that pitch. Well, how's that a ball? And then all of a sudden, he's in a lose-lose situation. He calls it a strike. One team's mad. He calls it a ball. The other team's mad. And now the umpire's in his head because the reality is he just wants to be fair and call what he sees. So he's thinking, oh, do I owe them a makeup? What are, you know, if we just got to make it look easy so that the umpire feels comfortable. If I know I'm going to just go in with an idea of I'm just going to catch it right where it's at, I tell guys all the time, go introduce yourself to the umpire. Say, hey, Mr. Umpire, how are you? I'm Brett. Really nice to meet you. Hey, just letting you know, my philosophy is I'm just going to try to catch it right where it's at, and I'm just going to let you decide if it's a ball or a strike. I'm not going to try to do anything too crazy. And then, like, immediately the umpire is going like, oh, great. Let's go. It's going to be a great day. So he's already in go mode to start the game. Now he's more amped up go mode because he doesn't feel like he's going to be dealing with any of that stuff. And that gets him comfortable calling strikes, which in turn gets your pitcher comfortable throwing strikes. And obviously the results speak for themselves. Yeah, man. I'm packing a lot there with, uh, you know, we're getting into a little bit of the umpire relationship, a lot of stuff that we do want to talk about. Um, Receiving logically flows into throwing, right? You can't, can't throw the throw guy out without receiving the baseball. I know we could talk about receiving till we're blue in the face and um, <laughs> let's, let's move on to the throwing aspect. And since you're doing a great job of just breaking everything down, um, I'm just going to open it up to you. What, what are some of the keys for a guy who's developing as a catcher to be a consistent thrower to uh, you know, regardless of arm strength, how can they, put themselves in the best position to throw guys out. So it does connect directly to the receiving and, and all of those positions of strength we talk about with receiving are going to create the same positions of strength to transfer this baseball to us. So again, in order to be consistent in terms of my throwing, I have to be under control in terms of having control of my body. So those positions of strength allow me to, I'm in control of the ball. I'm manipulating the ball. So I'm now taking that thing and I'm controlling it to the center of my body. And my body is in a good position with my upper body upright so that I know that, you know, our goal, we talk about with throwing every single time we start throwing our overall philosophy of throwing is this. You need to be in a position to throw the ball when your left foot hits the ground. So the overall philosophy of a pitcher is to get to that power position to be ready when the left foot hits the ground, you're able to torque, rotate, and throw the crap out of that thing. And the shortstop's going to backhand a ball, try to transfer it, get it to a point that when the left foot hits the ground, I'm throwing the baseball. And there's too much with, with catching that revolves around footwork. Everybody talks about footwork and catching. And obviously that's important and we need to have quick feet and we need to have you know, an idea of where we want our feet to go and everything like that. But that ball is going to determine what's going to happen. So if I'm not in a good position and I'm not working good hand positions, getting the glove in a position to get it where I want it, well, my feet are going to go wherever my hands go. So just like we talk about, I want to get the ball closer to my body when I'm receiving. If the ball's closer to my body when I'm throwing, 
Now that transfer becomes shorter, it becomes cleaner, but more importantly, I'm in the center of my body and I'm actually physically taking the steps to throw myself as opposed to if I get out in front of myself and I'm reaching to catch the ball, those steps are no longer physical steps. We call them catch steps because all you're doing is just catching your weight because you're moving. The ball's controlling you now at this point. So you're just moving to have your feet land so you don't fall on your face. So we do a bunch of drills, hand drills all the time. I mean, we focus on hand skill. I mean, that's the number one thing that we're going to do. So from receiving every single day, we'll go receiving transfer drills every single day. It doesn't matter what, what else is on the docket for that day, but we're going to receive some and we're going to transfer some and we're going to think about all the same positions. And we want to get it to the center of our body, just like everybody else. And we want to be able to separate those hands. And then when that left foot hits the ground, I'm ready to let it rip. So gets back to the idea that, you know, if, we're so concerned on pop time, which is important, right? We've got to be able to do it in somewhat an efficient fashion, but we've got to do it accurately. So the way to accomplish both of those things is the idea that I've got to position, get to a position to throw this ball as hard as I can. The guys who have the best pop times, you go to a showcase, you watch the guys in the big leagues on TV, the guys who have the best pop times have the strongest arms. So can we make up for some stuff on a transfer and moving a little bit quicker? Absolutely. But the reality is, is if, if having to, to feel like I'm doing something quicker with my hands or getting my feet going or doing whatever, you know, a lot of times that doesn't allow guys to throw the ball as hard as they can. We still need to get to where I, I'm getting the ball in the center and I'm separating my hands and my shoulders are rotating, you know, rotating a little bit even past second base so I can get a little more torque out of my core so that I can really throw this thing hard. So again, that, that starts with the idea of, of the hand skill. Where does the ball make contact with your glove, allowing you to be in control of the transfer? And, you know, realistically, it's, it's so counterintuitive to what we kind of grew up being taught, but I really need to move up to throw. And we, you know, there's so many times guys are talking about stay low, stay low. And obviously you need to be in your legs and be athletic, but I don't think I've ever said stay low to anybody because the reality is, is I have to be tall with my upper body. I can't throw with any sort of angle to my spine. Every time I get up to throw, I'm thinking my shoulders are going to get up, almost pinching my shoulder blades back to be able to get in a position to throw. So if my spine at any point in time has angle throughout that, That's one more thing that has to happen and go right through this process of moving as fast as I can to then get the ball out in front and release the baseball. And that happens with guys talking so much about feet and thinking about their footwork. You know, if I get my feet there super quick, but my hands are still together when my left foot lands, I'm trying to figure out how to pull them apart and throw without any movement from my lower half. It's no, there's zero timing. I mean, it'd be like basically hitting wise, You'd be, you know, ready, you know, to have your foot down, but then you're not going to load and you're going to try to load and hit all at one time. Um, and it'd be impossible. So getting to those strong positions, we really, we talk about kind of like staying in a phone booth where we move up to allow our upper body to stay up. And then when my left foot lands, I'm in a good position to then throw it as hard as I can. If anything takes me to where I 
you know, get a bad glove position over the top of a ball. Transfer becomes longer and comes down. Now what happens is my body comes to give support and strength. So my upper body leans forward. And now again, as I'm trying to throw, I'm trying to get my chest up and move back throughout the throwing motion. So again, this stuff is just similar to every other position of what everybody does. And I think it's one of those things where catching was always kind of like this, oh, that's just totally different. But the reality is like, it's, it's not, it's the same. Like they used to teach guys to transfer at their ear. Well, what, how does that make any sense? Like, would you ever have a, you know, an infielder, you know, an infielder go up to his ear with the ball when he fields the ground ball down? I mean, it, it makes no sense. We're strong at the center of our body. I'm able to immediately get my hands apart from the center of my body. I'm basically just adding time that my hands are going up together to the ear and up back down that they have to separate. It's not needed. And my arm works better from a circular motion. So if the ball comes to the center of my body, I'm now going to be in a position where I can feel those thumbs go down, which allows me to, to create that arm circle. So we're at the disadvantage where I don't get the ability to, you know, get this long, you know, throwing from right field, long arm, do whatever I want to generate speed and power. I have to do it in that shorter area. So if I'm doing it in a shorter area, I need to consistently move through that movement to throw. Velocity is created by arm speed and speed science is created by constant motion. So we're getting that zero to 60 is what we're trying to think about. How do I get my, from the transfer to the release, can I be constantly moving elbow back, elbow through and create a small circle with my throw? Now I'm creating more arm speed because I can't use the power of an outfielder where he can kind of bring his shoulders involved, really get big legs involved, everything like that. We've got to create speed. Whenever I transfer up and get to the ear, you know, you, you kind of can feel it if you were to do it right now where your hand and your elbow are like, you know, exactly in line with each other. So then when I do that, what happens is my hand starts moving back and I basically hit a wall. So my arm has to stop and then go forward. So you're getting to the first position faster, but you're going to lose the race. I, I tell the guys it's like a car race where one guy just jumps out to a start and that's the guy that transfers up to his ear. He jumped out to a quick start, but then his car like stalled for a second and he had to get it back into gear and go. And this guy who got off to a slower start, he just zooms by and wins the race by a mile because he just kept on gaining speed all the way through it. So that's essentially where if we're at the center of our body making that transfer, I can now feel the constant motion of my arm where it doesn't have to stop and start. So now everything is moving in this sequence. Transfer, separate. My upper body starts the turn of the body. Right, left, by the time my left foot hits the ground, I'm ready to go. And that arm's moving through that whole process to then let that thing fire out front. Yeah. So if if you're listening at home, and I know we're getting highly technical here, I'm going to try and recap um, what you just said in a few quick bullet points. You let me know how I do. Okay. One, one, receive it in a strong position. Two, transfer it in the center of your body. Three, keep the ball moving. Four, put yourself in a strong position to throw hard. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, an, an emphasis on hands over feet. Hands uh, over feet. I mean, I, 
Yeah, and I think that's something, again, we, we, we talk about in every other aspect of this game. You know, the, an infielder, you know, they're working on footwork drills, but, I mean, they're, they're doing picks way more than they're doing footwork drills. And, you know, hitters will do plenty of drills where they just go just hands and no feet, but they obviously don't ever go, you know, feet and no hands. So, I mean, everything is, is centered around what we do with our hands and, and catching. There's just so much on footwork and getting good footwork. But the reality is, is as fast as my feet are, my hands have to be faster so that I'm now in a position to throw when my feet get to the ground. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let's uh, sorry. I can keep on going. Like this yeah. is like, I, I know I'm, I'm like the worst podcaster because I'm like, you can put mm-hmm. me on tangents forever and I'll talk about catching for well, hours hey, on end. There's a lot, there's a lot to cover, man. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll, uh, we'll just keep you moving, give you another topic every once in a while and let you go to town on it. Um, so we've got recruit, we've got receiving, we've got throwing, um, you know, the, another big one that we talk about is blocking. And we've talked a little bit about it tangentially in this conversation already. But talk less about the, the specific mechanics of blocking. Give me the best blocking mindset. You know, I've heard guys like Tony Arnerich, who we've talked about extensively, um, you know, talk about how blocking can be a mindset. Um, what, what, what mind frame does a catcher need to have? to be a good blocker? Um, I mean, they have to want to block. Um, so, you know, you kind of got to be a little bit off your rocker, I guess would be kind of part of the description of being a catcher. Um, the, the biggest problem I have in teaching young guys to block is the idea that there's no human that's ever been created that wants to get hit by anything. Like you're literally just voluntarily letting something hit you. When I tell the kids, I'm like, Hey, if we were to walk down the street and I grabbed a ball and I looked at somebody and I threw it, how would they react? You know, like, well, they're obviously going to like get out of the way. They're going to duck. They're going to do whatever, you know, they're not just going to turn and like chest out like happy Gilmore, you know, 365 more days till next year's hockey tryouts, (laughs) you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to get out of the way. And that's our natural reaction as humans is to get out of the way. So we have to have a mindset that's a little bit different and we have to be able to, you know, want that ball to hit us and times where it's like, you know, Hey, run around third banks. I kind of hope this guy throws it in the dirt. I'm kind of ready to block this thing and do this. So we kind of have to have a mentality like that. So the best way I describe it um, to guys as we first kind of get into, into blocking is the idea that the reason that it's hard for us to mentally want to block is because we know there's a physical aspect and maybe some pain involved in the ball hitting us so they basically I say here's the deal you have to go into blocking thinking there's no pain physically that that ball can do to you that would outweigh the pain of allowing that ball to get by you so the the thought of that ball getting past you has to be so much worse than any physical pain that ball could do to you so it is just an absolute and, – and, you know, I, I, tell, I tell the guys to watch hockey. And, you know, it's like playoff hockey where it's like the, in, in hockey, especially the playoffs, that goal is so sacred. It's like don't let anything even get to the goalie. And you see guys 
They got no, you know, no gear on like we would have. They definitely have some pads and things, but they're like laying out on the ice, doing whatever it takes. Zadaro Chena, uh, Chara is not going to play the rest of the series because he took a puck to the mouth and broke his jaw. But it's like they're literally like doing whatever it takes to get in front of a puck to make sure that it doesn't even get to the goalie. And it's like that's the desperation of blocking is are you willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the ball doesn't get by you? So there's obviously some physical things, like you said, that we can talk about to try to make it easier. But the idea is if you don't want it, you know, do you have no chance? So there's got to be an aspect of, like I said, maybe you got a little bit of a screw loose. And, you know, I think us all, all its catchers do a little bit, have a little bit of a screw loose. But it's just the idea that there's no way that that ball can hit me on the arms, the, the wrist, the cup, whatever it takes. I'm not letting this thing get by me. And that mentality goes so far in terms of, you know, making guys good blockers is just the idea that, you know, I'm not going to let it happen. And I tell guys all the time, I'm like, there's so much that we do as catchers that we get zero credit for. Like we could be, you know, we could be the reason that that pitcher rolled because A, I was receiving super well. B, I walked out to the mound and knew that something was wrong and I was able to figure it out and I was able to get him back on track. Or maybe with a guy on second and third, you know, I called a pitch, change up out, and I knew that was the pitch to get him on. But I also moved my shortstop a little to the six hole, and the guy rolled one right to it. All that stuff, everybody in the in the stands, and even your own teammates, probably don't know the extent of how you caused the outcome of that. But when you block a ball, that's like the ultimate for a catcher, right? Everybody goes, great block, great job back there. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm yeah. like, at some point in time, you know, we love the idea of, of trying to preach to our catcher that the only thing that we really care about is the wins and losses, and that's what really feeds us. But, you know, we do need something every once in a while. We need a little bit of encouragement. And if I can be a good blocker, that's when guys are going to be like, hey, great job. You know, I mean, if I block a ball, that was a brutally tough block with a guy on third base. I just saved a run. I mean, that's the equivalent of adding a run. That's like a home run on defense. So if I can do some stuff like that, now obviously I'm making a big difference and impact on the game. But I also get a little bit of that reinforcement. When I know that kids are good blockers, I know they're going to get a little bit of reinforcement during the day knowing that they're doing a good job. And, you know, the best catchers, it was like when I first got at Cal, and Coach Esker's like, hey, you know who I think the best catchers are? He's like, the ones that I don't even notice. Yeah. He's like, if I didn't notice a catcher, then I, you know, he obviously did everything well because the only time you really ever notice a catcher is when he's sprinting to the backstop or when he's throwing a ball into center field or, you know, botching a ball. That's the only time you really notice. So we talk about, hey, be unnoticed. Be so good that people don't notice you. But realistically, like, we're all humans, and especially when you're working with kids at younger ages, you know, they're not able to, to really process that and say, man, that was awesome. We got that win, and I know that I had a huge effect on that but nobody else really did. It's always good to have that reinforcement for kids at all ages. I mean, I'm talking kids. When I say kids, I'm talking, you know, 25 and under um, who need that like constant reinforcement and you block a couple balls. I mean, you really can get that, you know, little bit of boost that you need to have the coach be like, Oh man, you did a great job. You know, you're blocking balls left and right. Even if that wasn't the best thing that you did that day. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at here a little bit is, you know, catching is, it's, it's a thankless position and a lot of the intangible things are not 
measurable. So you talk about, and we'll get into a little conversation here about managing the pitching staff, but you brought it up already a few times, right? You talked about establishing the outside edge of the zone and expanding it to give your pitcher confidence. You talk about blocking balls with runners on third base to give your pitcher the confidence to throw that, that breaking ball in the dirt. Um, what, what you're talking about here is a relationship with your pitching staff, managing the pitching staff, which, you know, again, is something that there's not really, yes, you can put some numbers behind it, but there's not really a stat that measures that. So um, what are you doing? I know the, the interpersonal skills is a big deal to what you guys are doing. So what are you doing with your catchers? What are you talking about in terms of managing the staff, working with the pitchers, being their psychologist, whatever it takes, uh, kind of break down how you go about teaching that. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, you know, that's one of the toughest things for us where we're not on the field with the guys, um, you know, where we don't really get to see them in that, that aspect. So, you know, try to get out to games and see them and we could talk about it, but we talk about a lot of that stuff in classes. Uh, we kind of take some time to, to say, you know, we'll kind of do a case study sort of a deal. Like, okay, here's your situation. Um, pitcher struggling to throw strikes. He's walked two guys in a row. You know, it's a nothing, nothing game, fifth inning. You know, what are you saying when you go out there? And I think the first thing is, you know, we have to have a basis of knowledge of every single guy and what makes them tick. So the amount of time we spend with our pitchers is so important. And, you know, we can't really ever, you know, understand how important bullpens are because as catchers, we think of them as like grunt work. It's like, oh, I got to go catch bullpens. And I was the same way. Like we all were like, dang, man, like guys are out there, you know, hitting bombs off the RSF. And here I am over in the bullpen, you know, catching all these dudes. And it's like the reality is, is A, that's the best game-like work we're going to get from all of our physical tools. But B, I'm really developing a relationship with those pitchers. And I'm also just learning them in terms of, you know, what cues they are, they have that makes me know, okay, he's starting to get to a tilting point that I need to check in with him. Um, what cues do we have that we know he's locked in? Don't say a word to him, let him roll, like just get him on doing what he's doing. So, um, you know, managing pitchers is really more of a case by case thing, but, you know, everything in terms of that, of being a leader and, you know, developing on, on trying to get the most out of your teammates and things like that, all goes back to the greatest quote in the world by Ken Revisa. You know, people got to know you care before they care what you know. And the bottom line is if you're a terrible teammate and you don't care and then you just don't do the drills 100%, everything, when you walk out to the mound, that guy, he doesn't respect you. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at all what you say. So your relationship with those pitchers and getting the most out of them has to do with how you carry yourself as a person and a teammate and, you know, allow them to, you know, say, okay, this is somebody that's, you know, meaningful within our organization on our team that I got to listen to. And then if you feel you're in that position and you have a role of leadership and you can work, like you understand them a little bit, you've got to really work to see what does make them tick. You know, sometimes you got to go out there and a guy who you know will respond to a little bit of, you know, getting in his face, you say, dude, I'm sick and tired of it. Let's go. Let's figure it out. And let's go. And that guy might go awesome. Get in there and start doing it. You know, kind of give you an F you, I'll show you. And he goes in and he does it. You know, some guys could completely wilt and be like, dude, screw you. And then start throwing it all over the yard. 
And some guys, those guys, you might go up to them and be like, hey, man, like, hey, you see that chick in the second row? Yeah. You know? And all of a sudden, you just kind of get their mind off of something, and, you know, it's able to kind of track them back. So, I mean, I think the overall, like, in terms of really being able to manage your pitching staff is how well do you know them? I mean, I honestly, like, I look back, and the best, you know, best pitching staff I ever caught was – you know, I was playing summer ball up in Canada and, you know, we were just, I mean, we were throwing like shutouts. Like we had to deal with so much pitchers BP that summer. It was brutal, but we were doing so well on the mound. And honestly, I, I look back on that and I'm like, you know, nobody really ever shook me. Like we had such a great relationship, but it was like, I was always hanging out with those guys every night too. It was like on the road, it was like me and four pitchers eating dinner. And it was like, I didn't really realize it or think about it until like later down the road. I'm like, that's really where my relationship with them, you know, was created. It wasn't created, you know, in a bullpen on the mound. It was created off the field where I just got to know them and we became friends. And I really understood what made them tick to the point that, you know, I, I could kind of figure them out in the game in the heat of the moment. So um, and, and realistically, we as leaders, you know, we're just talking about leading the staff, but realistically, catchers should be leaders of the whole program um, and want to be an example to the whole program that we got to do that same thing with everybody. And, you know, if you can basically say, I'm going to treat the best player the same as the worst player, you know, then you're all across the board. You have everybody's respect. And you know, we're in the, I'm in the Bay area and I know, you know, obviously you're in Northern California. So I know it's a lot of what we work with, but you know, there's, there's one thing that we're blessed about here and that's, you know, Steph Curry. And you know, that's <laughs> something where I talk about, you know, he's an incredible player and he might be one of the best players of all time physically. But, you know, when people say, Oh, this, you know, it's so easy. They got the best players or whatever. That's not when it's easy. I mean, and his leadership, and what he brings in terms of how he's the hardest worker, how he's the most humble, how he doesn't care who gets the credit. He's literally, Steph Curry is like, obviously he's a superstar. So I can't really say he's like, you know, unsung hero by any stretch, but he's kind of the catcher of that team because there's so much stuff that he does that's thankless. And there's so much stuff that all these idiots on, you know, TV that we listen to talk about like, oh, but he doesn't have this and he doesn't have that. They, there's no stat, there's no quantifying what he's done in terms of that locker room and developing of all of those guys. I promise you he treats Kevin Durant the exact same way he treats Quinn Cook. I mean, it's that's that's the way that he is and who he is. And that's why he has so much respect that, you know, when the team's hampered with injuries, you know, they got guys still busting their butt to, you know, come in, step up, do things. And that's really the managing of pitching is really, you know, being a leader, which I told you, I'm so terrible at this right now. I've just gone into a whole tangent of <laughs> leadership. Like I could, you know, go forever, but the reality is, is that's what it is. So the minute you step on the field of the team, you're immediately setting a stage for how people are going to listen and respond to you. So if you go out there and you're the guy just busting it everywhere, you're that, you know, extension of the coaching staff, you know, everything like that, you know, that they're going to listen to you. You know, there's a kind of a fine line of extension of the coaching staff and one of the guys, you know, we, we can't be, you know, always like the nerdy 
coach's buddy. And, you know, we can't be the crazy out of control, you know, hanging with the guys. we got to have that middle point where we know, hey, you know what, in certain situations, I'm going to mess around. I'm going to joke with my guys, have some fun. You know, that may be in the dugout when we're grabbing a drink of water off the field, extra hitting, you know, maybe doing some extra work. I'll have some time to build some relationships, have some fun. But know that when we get on the field and we step between the lines, there's a certain way that things need to be done. And if you want them done a certain way, you sure as hell better do them exactly the way you want them done. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice little, nice little summary of the, basically the entire relationship, right? How you build that trust, how you gain that respect, and then how that translates to success. And since you got your obligatory warriors comment in there, now we can, <laughs> now we can move to wrap things up. Just a few more questions for you. Um, talking about some different topics, I was expecting you to say, you know, dubs and six, but didn't didn't get there yet. Not not. You know, man, that. we just we're just out here taking it one game at a time. And there you, know, you go. We just focused on Friday, and you know, we're gonna go out there, give it our best, and then we'll we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, there's the catcher's response, right? <laughs> Very nice. Um, I've watched Bull Durham a few times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want you to put your recruiting hat on. I, I two more questions. Um, first one, you've been on the recruiting side. You've also seen a number of your players get recruited to college programs. So what are you looking for when you're recruiting a college catcher? Where do you start there? Um, how are you evaluating these guys? Um, so I think there's so many, so many times we're recruiting players that the focus is kind of on projectability. That's like the big word, right? Like, Hey, hey, there's a guy, he can't receive, he can't block, but he throws the crap out of it, you know, and, and every coach kind of goes, he can swing it a little bit. He throws it, you know, like uh, I can make him, you know, whatever it it, uh, takes to, to be able to do the rest. Um, Cause those are kind of like those unteachable things. But I think, you know, when I'm recruiting catchers, the, the unteachable things, the intangibles that I'm looking for um, really don't have to do with physicality. Obviously, look, this is a, this is, there's no doubt that I need good players. I need talent. It's easier to recruit guys that are talented. Um, you know, I get, catchers all the time that ask me like, Oh, you know, like so-and-so has already got a scholarship and like, I'm hitting, you know, this more than him, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you know, look objectively, you know, he's more talented. That's, that's just the nature of the world that we live in. Um, so we obviously want talent, but the things that you really kind of can't teach are number one, I want my catcher to have a high motor. I mean, that's, that's my biggest thing from the catching position. Um, I want a guy that is going to bust it and sprint to back up first base on every single ground ball of every single game he ever plays. So not just like, Oh, it's a showcase, whatever. I'll just jog back here. If he overthrows it, who cares? It's like, no, it's the game of baseball. This is how we do it. I'm sprinting back there. I'm making sure I'm there. If that ball is overthrown, Um, moving with that motor Um, communication skills are really important. You know, how does he communicate throughout the game? You know, we talk about, multiple ways of communication, whether it be verbal, whether it be, you know, using our hands, whatever it may be to try to help communicate with people, but communication skills are really important. And then, you know, obviously 
if we got both those things, you know, the more the merrier in terms of what can they do physically. Um, again, kind of a, not an intangible because it's something that we can work on and develop, but, you know, flexibility and athleticism are really important. So if I know a guy looks comfortable in his stance, you know, at 17 um, and I'm trying to recruit him to college, well, I know that, you know, it's going to be easier for me to get him to do different things um, from those positions. So, you know, now it's just a, you know, obviously a huge bonus if I watch him can really receive and, you know, he does a great job throwing and he's blocking everything. Those things are all great, but, um, you know, the reality is, and this is why, again, in our program, we talk a lot about our bodies and getting ourselves into the right position to do things because, you know, there's kind of showcase baseball and then there's baseball baseball. And those are two different things. Um, you know, when I catchers go into a showcase, he says, Hey, what do you think I should do? I say, I want you to throw the ball as hard as you can, because the reality is they just want to see your arm strength. They don't, you aren't really looking for somebody who's, you know, got a really great smooth transfer throws out front bang. It's right on the bag every time. Um, you know, they want to find somebody that they think has the ability to have a high ceiling that they can work through. But, um, I've seen plenty of catchers who have a, a total package at a young age and, and uh, they may not have the strongest arms kind of back to our first conversation of the pitch framing stat and how big that is that now, you know, I mean, even you look at catchers in the big leagues, there's a ton of catchers in the big leagues that can't throw anybody out. I mean, it's literally like, it's painful to watch some of the guys try to throw. And the reality is, is that there's just such a bigger emphasis on receiving because of the amount of guys that are throwing harder amount of guys that are throwing with sync with movement so for me aside from kind of the you know the intangible stuff we talked about if a guy can receive really well and he has good positions on what he's doing receiving like we said the throwing stuff connects straight to that so it's going to be an easy transition to figure that out but you know the number one thing is do you play the game hard do you have a high motor you know are you communicating with your teammates and then obviously are you getting into good positions with your body I want every I want every guy to pass that test to also be able to receive and block and throw, but you know I could create the you know try to create the greatest catcher, but if he doesn't play the game hard, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, in that position, there's just so much on you, so much responsibility on you at all times uh, that that high motor and the intensity of the game is is by far the most important piece in my mind. Yeah, everything kind of flows from that. If you have that. Mm-hmm. You can work and improve that other stuff. Awesome. Definitely. All right. So the last question we have for you before we let you run, it's not really a question. It's more of an open mic. So we call this portion of the segment mic drop. And basically we just give you, you got a platform here. You have an audience of a bunch of catchers out there, parents listening. Um, give your best piece of advice on either the recruiting process or uh, the catching position, um, anything that we didn't cover, open mic to you to mic drop it off. So I'll kind of connect both catching and recruiting, obviously, with, um, you know, what you guys are doing in terms of giving information towards the recruiting process. But um, the reality is, is that time needs to be spent getting better. So when we talk about guys and, and what they're doing and, you know, it gets to the conversation of, you know, how do I get seen? You know, what should I be doing? 
Um, the reality is, is what you should be doing is getting better. So anytime, tell kids, anytime you're thinking about, I should, what should I be doing? Should I be out here? Should I go to this tournament? Should I go to that tournament? I'm like, in that moment that you even have that thought, just literally go pick up a glove, go pick up a bat, go to the gym and just work to get better. And I think that there's too much emphasis on what, you know, what's exactly the path to getting recruited. And the path to getting recruited is to be good at the game, period. Mm -hmm. So to be better at the game, you've got to work a ton. If you want to get better at hitting, take thousands and thousands and thousands of swings. And if you want to get better at catching, we got to take thousands and thousands of reps in terms of what we're doing so that when we get out in the game, everything becomes comfortable to be able to do it. The reason that guys are successful in pressure situations is they're able to revert to form. So if their form is a good and they're comfortable and they can feel like they're going to execute, that's what it's all about. So my advice is, you know, figure out how to create a plan and a template for yourself of how to get better. So, you know, it can't be just, well, I think I'm going to, I'm going to work on receiving like three days a week. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to work on, on what day? And at what time, you know, put yourself a time management program to say, here's what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, I worked at College of San Mateo with Doug Williams, and he's got this incredible, he calls it Formula One. And it's all about goal setting and then taking these goals and shifting them into a time management spreadsheet to basically say, hey, you know what, you know, what's my goal? I need to be specific about what I want to do. What do I want to try to achieve? So if I want to achieve, hey, I want to hit, you know, I want to hit better this year. Well, I mean, what's better? You know, better is something different to every single person. But if you say, I want to hit 350 this year, like that's, that's a specific thing. I know everybody in this room, everybody in baseball knows what 350 is. So I want to hit 350. And how am I going to set a specific goal to do that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take extra swings after practice. Well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean if you walk in and you take two swings, that's plural swings, you took two extra swings and that's good? Or is it, you know what, on Mondays after practice, I'm spending a half hour hitting off of the breaking ball machine because I really need to focus on that. You know, I'm going to spend a half hour receiving that same breaking ball machine because I'm really not getting underneath that breaking ball enough. I want to get as many reps as I can. So there's, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, quit spending time worrying about, you know, how to get recruited and spend time worrying on how to get better and understand that this game, the beautiful part about baseball is that there is a place for every single player in college baseball. You just have to be willing to understand what your path is. And it's different for everybody else. You know, again, some guys develop at the age of 14 and they're getting a scholarship to go play at Stanford. And that same guy that's, you know, right next to him, you know, who didn't develop at 18, went to a junior college, was an All-American, and then they're going to Stanford after two years. Same guy who just doesn't have the same sort of ability. We all have different abilities. We're all born with different genetics. That same guy may go to Cal State Monterey Bay and play in a great Division II team and compete to win a championship there and might go to Chapman, a D3 in Southern California, and compete for a championship there. we got NAIA options. We've got different parts of the country. You know, thinking about like college, we, every kid goes to, to the college process who's not an athlete and says, well, I like this school and this school are my top priorities. And I want to go here, 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 here. And they go, what is really important? Well, my major is business. So they need to have a business major. 
And then I also love, you know, going to football games. So I really want it to be kind of a big school where I can have that football experience of going to games on Saturdays. And then I really hate the cold. So I'm not going anywhere in the north. I'm going to stay, you know, California, west, south. And then baseball, we just get this idea of like, oh, I just want to go D1. Right. And it's like, well, okay, I go D1 and I went to, you know, somewhere where it's freezing and I don't like the cold. I went to somewhere where it's hot and I don't like the heat. I went to somewhere where I didn't realize they don't even have my major. I went to somewhere where I didn't realize I wasn't going to have housing my second year. I have to go get an apartment off campus. And that's kind of a pain. I mean, there's, there's so many aspects to the college process. And as athletes, we just kind of, we're, we're hoping to get picked um, by anybody. We're like the kid at the kickball game, just hoping our name gets called. The reality is, is like, you should be the guy that's practicing every single night in kickball to be the first pick. And then you get to choose whatever it is that you want to do. So my, my kind of wrap up on my, on my mic drop here is, you know, stop focusing on factors you can't control. You can control how you get better. And there has to be a roadmap as to how you do that. It cannot be just, I'm just going to get a bunch of work in, or I'm just going to get better. I'm going to go lift weight. the, The physical aspect, the stretching, the flexibility, the working out, everything with your body is so important. And you can't just be going into 24 hour, throwing up a couple of sets of weights, sitting in the sauna and think you're going to get any better. You need to go in with a plan that says Mondays, I do this. Tuesdays, I do this. Wednesdays, I do this. And it's all outlined. When we outline a roadmap, we have a plan as to how we can succeed. But the, the part that's, that does the most for us is that I'm now accountable. I've written it down. So I have to now look at this roadmap as I go through it and feel either really, really good about myself that I'm moving through it. Or I got to really feel like crap because I'm looking at this roadmap and I'm a month in and I haven't completed anything that I've told myself I want to complete. And that's the biggest, that's the scariest part for everybody. I mean, we, I'm, you know, my age, older than me, my, you know, people, my parents age, whatever it is, you know, being accountable for something is difficult. So when you write it down, you've got to be accountable for it. So make yourself accountable for it. Write it down, remind yourself. If you look at it and you feel like crap, and you don't feel like you're being accountable for it, then don't don't tell somebody you're upset that you're not getting recruited. You can't tell anybody that you're upset that the coach isn't playing you. You can't tell anybody that you don't understand the certain situation that you're in. Create the roadmap, be accountable for yourself, and you can answer your own questions at all times. Boom. There it is. Accountability, Boom. roadmap. Love it. Focus on development. Um, well, I have a feeling that we could talk about a few things else. So we're going to have to try and get you back on the podcast at some point down the line and break down some catching more, some recruiting stuff more, but really just appreciate, yeah, appreciate you taking out the time today, Brett, come on and break down the catching position and, uh, looking forward to connecting with you down the line. Sounds good, man. Thanks again for all that you do. This is honestly, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, this is an incredible resource. Uh, Ethan comes to my camp every year and does a great job talking about the college process and, and everything that goes into it. And I think, you know, sometimes in the, in the world of baseball, business, everything, you know, free, sometimes you think that's not of a certain quality, but this is just literally uh, an incredible resource for free 
that is of an extreme high quality. He should be charging a lot of money for what's being offered here. So please take advantage of it. It is really incredible stuff. Appreciate the kind words, man. Look forward to keeping in touch and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. As always, if you need more information on the recruiting process or how to play college baseball, you can find that for free on our website, www.keepplayingbaseball.org. We're also very active on social media. That's at KeepPlayingBB on Twitter, KeepPlayingBaseball on Facebook, and at KeepPlayingBaseball on Instagram. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take the time to subscribe and leave us a review, or at least tell your friends. We provide all this information for free because we want to help you get to the next level. If you're interested in a partnership or sponsorship in underwriting some of the Keep Playing Baseball content on our website or being the title sponsor or running ads on our podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to keepplayingbaseball at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.